Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 438 of the podcast. It's Carrie here, and I hope our time together today helps you thrive in life and leadership. Pete Scazzaro back on the podcast today. And my goodness, you know, we kind of thought, I don't know what world we're in right now, whether we're in the post-pandemic world, the mid-pandemic, the Delta variant world, I, I don't know. But what I thought was we would all be getting healthier. And I've been uh, digging into some research lately. That's not the case. So leaders are stressed. Um, 30% of CEOs have thought about quitting. 40% of people are changing jobs. of people, leaders, can't sleep at night. I mean, it's challenging. So I'm so glad to have Pete Scazzaro back. And we're going to talk about getting you healthy. And this is a theme we come back to, well, increasingly on the podcast. Uh, But to me, it's like a diamond. You just keep turning it in different angles and you see it differently in different light. And Pete wants to help you get emotionally and spiritually healthy. And so we're going to talk about that. Uh, today's episode is brought to you by Remodel Health. Please, we are so thankful for our partners. And if you haven't checked them out, do that. Head on over to remodelhealth.com slash analysis today to get your health benefits analysis and use the code CAREY50, that's C-A-R-E-Y 50 for 50% off. And by Ministry Grid, podcast listeners get $200 off the regular Ministry Grid price by going to ministrygrid.com slash CAREY. So, Pete, is going to talk about the reasons so many pastors fail. Like this is, if you are under chronic stress, that is actually an indicator that you could end up doing something with your life and with your responsibility that you don't want to do. Uh, We're going to talk about how your platform can easily outgrow your character and how to develop an interior life that will help you lead a healthy organization and life. Pete, after leading the New Life Fellowship for 26 years, co-founded Emotionally Healthy Discipleship, a groundbreaking ministry that moves the church forward by slowing the church down in order to multiply deeply changed leaders and disciples. He hosts the top-ranked Emotionally Healthy Leader podcast, is the author of a number of best-selling books, included The Emotionally Healthy Leader and Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. And um, hey, if you are not part of the church world, welcome. We're really glad you're here. We're trying to bring the best of the church world to business and the best of the business world to church leaders. And you can apply these in whatever context you're at. Those are the kinds of conversations we're committed to having. I've also got an episode today of Ask Me Anything About Productivity. We're going to talk about Gina's question. And she asks, how do you respond in crisis? Do you need a different rhythm in crisis? So uh, I'm going to answer that. And honestly, life is crisis. So how do you deal with it when stuff is always popping up? Well, blind decisions, as you know, lose you money. Sadly, as organizational leaders, we often fail into making blind decisions all the time, especially when it comes to employee health benefits. New research shows that more often, employers overspend on health benefits and underprovide for employees. And that bothers me. And they don't even realize it. That is why exactly our partner, Remodel Health, designed their exclusive health benefits analysis tool. So it gives you total visibility on what matters most to employees, then compares what they want against newer, better, and cheaper plans. So you're actually giving your team what they want and need. Plus, using these analyses have literally saved customers millions of dollars. To date, Remodel Health has helped our podcast listeners just from this show alone 
save over $2.1 million. So head on over to remodelhealth.com slash analysis today to get your health benefits analysis and use the code CAREY50, that's C-A-R-E-Y 50 for 50% off. And pastors and church leaders, while we've got you, do you wish you could streamline and standardize your volunteer training? Lots and lots of organizations are struggling with volunteer training right now. And sometimes it's hard to get them all in the room, particularly when you got people who are anxious to be back, people who don't want to be back, people who are volunteering online. You got to check out Ministry Grid. They have everything you need to streamline volunteer training all in one place. It's an online tool to build, customize, and curate your volunteer training in your church. You can use their 700 plus training courses and upload your own videos. Over the past year, they have seen churches adding their own content. And my church, Connexus Church, uses Ministry Grid, has found it so beneficial for our own training. And I'm being trained as a volunteer this fall at my church too, now that I'm no longer a lead pastor. Here's the best news of all. They're offering our podcast listeners $200 off the regular Ministry Grid price. For just $399 a year, you get unlimited access for your church. So head on over to ministrygrid.com forward slash carry to get this special offer. So leaders, I'm in your corner and very grateful to bring you another conversation with Pete Scazzaro. I don't think you're going to be disappointed. Here we go. Well, Pete, we've already started into our conversation and I figured I had to hit record. Welcome back. Thank you, Carrie. I'm, I'm welcome. I'm happy to be welcomed back. You're always, you're always welcome. Yeah, we had a great conversation over at Church Pulse Weekly, the podcast I do with the Barna Group. And man, it was so good. I thought, well, let's just pick it up kind of where we left off there and where we left off here last time you were on the podcast. But you were saying you're learning some really interesting things as somebody's written numerous books, lived in content for a long time. Tell us a little bit about your masterclass and what you're learning from that. Because I was really interested, and this is for all content creators, and there's a lot who listen to this podcast, which is a really interesting way to figure out how your message lands, what your audience is really thinking, the people that you're you're talking to. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah. I mean, we again, I, I was telling Carrie, I fell into it. I, I It wasn't yeah. something I, I thought about. I know, like my daughter, for example, went to an MBA program in Spain, second best in Europe, and it was based on mostly the case study method. I know Harvard's MBA program. I know a friend who taught there, and it's a case study method. Um. And so I knew about it. Uh, I played with it years ago, but I, uh, when I wrote Emotionally the Discipleship, I decided to do a master class for just 40 people. Um, and what I did do was I invited people. I didn't want to just be lecturing. So I did like a 30 minute kind of what's underneath what I wrote on different chapters. But then I asked them to write, send in case studies and I gave them a basic format to follow uh, with some simple questions like, you know, tell me your context. Uh, leadership context, what problem are you facing? And they had to define it. Um, what have they tried so far to, I want them to know what they tried that didn't work. Um, mm -hmm. They listed that. And then what questions are they holding? Uh, that was very important. And so it it drew out I was, uh, so much of, for me, it was because it was so specific and stuff came out of me that I hadn't thought about. I'll give you one little example. One was an Anglican uh, rector, priest, works for the diet, one of the diocese there in the UK. And he'd been doing our material with his diocese for the last, say, five, eight years. And he was frustrated because they were so slow to respond and change and all that. And so, you know, I would get these case studies and I would I would pray over them. I'd say, Lord, you know, how would you have me respond? So in his case, I just said, oh, 
Let me just look for a second. Yeah, I know a little bit about how it was found. Church of England was founded. So I said, oh, when did I start? Oh, 1529. You know, Kendrick Yeah, that was a while ago. Guy, we'll call him Joe. I said, Joe, you have, you're, in, you're part of the Church of England. You have been around almost, you know, 1529 it started. That's a long genogram history, okay? <laughs> and I said, and so you expect that you've been teaching some stuff for the last, you know, seven, eight years, and you're upset because they have not changed their 500-year history <laughs> in five to eight years. And I said, you don't understand, first of all, what it means to understand a genogram, legacies and positive and negative legacies and, and how history impacts our present. And I said, and what you're doing is magnificent, but it's a mustard seed. The kingdom. So I got into the whole issue of the kingdoms of mustard seed. We got into not just a genogram of your family of origin, but genograms of, of a church de denomination like that. And then I said, and then of course, and I, I, then I followed that with a guy who was from uh, Bulgaria, a couple of pastors there in Sofia, Bulgaria. And again, their attempt to bring emotionally healthy discipleship into their context and leadership development. And so we got everything from, you know, their history to, you know, being under communism for decades, then the Nazis, and now all the corruption post-91. And, and you're battling so much stuff. And I said, yeah, like, that's why you're there. But like this thing of speed and frustration was such a great moment. Um, and, uh, you know, just getting perspective of genograms. It's not just genograms of churches and denominations, but of also of countries that have to be taken into account. Just, just, just a quick clarification. What's a genogram? How is that different? A genogram is a way to, um, map out your, uh, your family of origin or church or movement over generations. And, right. and it, it, it comes out of family systems theory that, um, it's interesting how I, how I fell into this. I, I spent many, a couple of decades working on it. I, I, uh, it, it, so anyway, it's, it's a tool used primarily by high level therapists. And if you're getting a master's in like marriage and family therapy or PhD in systems theory, you'll learn about genograms. But I got exposed to it uh, when I actually began this journey uh, of EH discipleship in 1996 when Jerry and I, my wife and I were in a therapist's office and our marriage was doing badly. And he did, in 10 minutes, he just, he put a, put a couple, you know, charts, he go, your grandparents, you know, Jerry, your grandparents, what was their marriage like? I don't know. How'd you describe them? A couple of adjectives. Okay. What was your mother and father's marriage like? I don't know, a couple of adjectives. And then he did mine. Pete, describe your grandparents' marriages. Oh, a couple of adjectives. Just, and what were they like? Okay. How they resolve conflict, et cetera. Then what was your parents' marriage like? And then he said, let's look at your marriage. He did it like about 10, 15 minutes. And what was so striking for us was we've been Christians and very arrogant, proud Christians that we were the first Christian generation, like in our families. We're so different. And then we looked at it and said, huh, our marriage isn't really any different than our parents' marriage in terms of <laughs> unresolved conflicts, et cetera. And, uh, it, it, and I said, that was powerful. And so I went and started doing research on this thing called you know, what was that it called genograms? And then I went and got my doctorate in marriage and family. And I did a full, I went, so I spent years working on this thing. And I said, hmm. this is a powerful tool to bring into the church in the area of leadership development and discipleship. And so it became a very core piece of everything we developed that 
we all come from families of origin that go way yeah. back in histories. And that when you come to Jesus, you're birthed into a new family, the family of Jesus, where life is different. And so discipleship is leaving your family of origin and leaving your culture and learning to do life in the new family of Jesus. That's discipleship. But that's a very, so we developed this tool of the genogram basically for church. That's not, you don't have to be a professional to use. It took us quite, it took us, honestly, it took us 17 years to actually figure out how do you do this through a video and how do you do it in a church context without professionals there? People thought I was crazy. They said, you're going to get in legal trouble. You're going to, I said, no, I'm not a professional either. I'm a pastor. I said, but this can be done. So it just, it was a lot of trial and error. It's extremely powerful with many, many, many applications. Um, but it's a, it's a paradigm of understanding discipleship. So for example, I, I tell you earlier, like I'm in my, you know, I'm in my, I turned 65 in 10 days. And so hey, like- Happy birthday. Thank you. So like, how do you do your, how do you grow older in the new family of Jesus? What does that look like? Uh, and, but you see, I have a script of how to grow older from my Italian American family, from my family of origin, then from Western culture of how they view aging. So uh, as I relate to my adult children, I have four adult children who have got their own families, two of them are their own families and grandkids, how we relate as peers. I'm not their father telling them what to do anymore. That's a, that's a big developmental task. Yeah, it is. How do I not over-function, but yet be a, a peer with them, respectful and a grandfather without meddling? Well, that's a whole, I never saw that modeled well. Uh, it's all about power and identity. You know, how do I want to live into my serving Jesus uh, into my 60s, 70s, 80s, and hopefully 90s? Uh, I'm in the best years of my life, you know? And so- Yeah. It, so we live in an age- Pete, where people feel self-determined, you can be anything, you can rewrite the script, you can decide what you would become. And I can imagine there are a couple of leaders, maybe particularly younger leaders listening, who are like, oh, like how would what King Henry VIII did in, fifth, in the 16th century impact me today? Yeah. Um, what would you say? Or even my grandparents. Like, I don't even know the names of my great-grandparents. How how do they impact me today? Because the older I've gotten, the more what you're saying resonates with me. And I'll give you a very practical example. I have a coach right now, a counselor slash performance coach. And he profiled me against high-performing leaders. And apparently my activity level, even compared to other high-performing leaders, if you want to put it in, the, in a category, is off the charts, like almost pathological. I just am not good at sitting still. Now, I come from entrepreneurs, right? My parents ran a business. I also pointed out to uh, to Greg McEwen recently, I was on his podcast because he was asking about my activity level. And, uh, you know, I'm like, well, you know, my parents are both from Holland. I was born in Canada. But, you know, the Netherlands did actually reclaim a third of their land from the sea over the last few centuries. Like, wow. there's a sense in which the Dutch are never idle. They're always moving. They're always improving. They're always mm. fixing. And I've been to Holland five times in my life. But, like, would that show up in my personality? What, what are we talking about here? Absolutely. It's in your, your bones. Okay. We, we like to say Jesus may be in your heart, Carrie, but grandpa's in your bones. That's the, that's kind of our <laughs> mantra. And so, oh, it absolutely lives in you. And just like you look at Canadian history, you know, why, why are Canadians have to be, tend to be more peace loving, right? Peacemakers mm. kind of internationally. The United States, we have a war history, mm. fierce independence, you know, 
if you look at our history, polarization is not a new thing. Like, I read 1776 last summer, the David McCullough book, I think it is. And I felt like I was reading 2016. Like, everything's changed and nothing's changed. There was polarization, racial tension, tension between men and women, between regions, North and South. The whole deal, that was all there. And the right to bear arms, which explains America's attitude toward guns. I'm reading a book on Teddy Roosevelt by Doris Kearns, the historian, and uh, the early 1900s. It sounds like you're reading today. It's the same issues, you know? And it's amazing, uh, the similarities. It's on our bones as a country, so it's nothing surprising. But, you know, I've been called a racehorse on steroids. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> by one, the business, he's a business guy, does a lot of consulting with a friend of mine with uh, large CEOs of businesses. And he goes, yeah. Pete, no wonder you're an urban monk because you basically, you're, you're a, and I deal with CEOs, he goes, they're racehorses. He goes, you're a racehorse on steroids. Wow. And part of it's creativity just comes out of me. And so I have had, I mean, it's just happened. My journey ended up moving into monastic rhythms. For, because I, I needed to to balance and, and center, so that that had a, that had a, in a sense a, a proper channeling. I'm still highly innovative. I mean, I'll I will I'm sure on my deathbed have a bucket list like Disney had of what do you call it? Kind of a the wish list of dreams. I'll have of things which could be over here a bucket, um, and I and I love that. However, there's limits. It's a big part of my, you know, big part of theology, which is part of my rediscovering is a gift of limits, um, biblically and then personally, um, so important. So I, I think theologically, as a leader who's entrepreneurial as well, uh, it's been such a gift to get anchored into some of this, what I call emotional health and a slow down monastic kind of spirituality in the midst of activity which has saved my life, first of all, but been so rich and wonderful and necessary. And I think partly because of, of my family of origin, my history um, and culture where I, where I live. I'm, I'm in where, New York. Where did your racehorse come from? Some of that's God-given DNA, but like when you look back at your genogram, or from pronouncing that I, right? No, I don't fully know. My, my father, we, we had a family business too. My father okay. had, um, he definitely had some in him, but- uh, he was a depression baby. His father had died. He ended up having to leave high school, you know, support the family. Uh, so he was always struggling his whole life to support everybody, uh, even our family. You know, he was immigrant. He was an Italian immigrant. So you had that whole immigrant thing um, for your kids would get ahead. But he had a lot of ideas and dreams. My mom had mental illness, so he was never able to, like, do much because of her illness. Um, and he was he was a workaholic. Mm-hmm. Uh, as well, but he, so I think, I think I, I look back at it. He, ha- my, none of my siblings don't have it. He has it. Uh, he had it, but it never quite got expressed. I think for me, I don't know. It just, I don't know. It just, I, I think I look back at him, um, for sure. Uh, and my mother's side, grandparents who had some entrepreneurial stuff. I had some bad family members too, like on the mafia <laughs> side as well. So I, I, I don't know what they were all about. <laughs> so, right. uh, but I think some of it's Holy Spirit gift wise, um, dreams and visions. Uh, I love dreaming. They get me <laughs> in trouble sometimes, but now getting older has been so good because I, I've got enough other balance theologically and experientially that I don't get in trouble as much starting projects I'm not going to finish, you know, more thoughtful, had a lot, a lot of failures under my belt. That's why getting older is like, 
I was told many years ago that your 60s and 70s will be your best decades if you're faithful in your 30s, 40s, 50s, you know? Mm. And, I, and I think that ended up being true. My mm. 60s are turning out to be my most fruitful decade and most wonderful decade uh, of life. So, so I encouraging to hear. Uh, so much of your work has been formative in my life, as you know, and part of it for for leaders, because I think you're right, we come out of the gate, they're, they're, you know, people who listen to this kind of podcast, there's a bit of stallion in, in everybody, right? Yeah. You're like, ah, I want to make a difference, want to make a dent in the universe, I, I want to work my way up, or I want to start something or or found something. And what I've discovered is it's it's a question of maybe redeeming the gift. In other words, my gift was there, but... It had a good side. It also had a shadow side and yeah. it hurt people along the way as you discovered in your marriage, as you discovered in your leadership. Um, what would you say to the leader? Because you and I have had the benefit that we're maybe a decade apart or so, but we've had the benefit of years that a lot of listeners haven't had. What would you say to the young leader who is trying to say, Pete, can I get there faster? Like, is there any way that I can get rid of the shadow side of my gift that's annoying everybody around me? or causing other problems in my life. I think for me, the, 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 and I, my encouragement to young leaders in their early 30s, for example, is, is tending to your inner life is a matter of life and death. You've got some issues here about culture, questions that you're gonna ask. We wanna develop healthy cultures. You wanna develop any, I don't care if it's a business, a ministry, a church. Healthy culture is the only way it's gonna be sustaining long-term. I don't care what you're building. And as leaders, it's going to flow out of, we are the culture. Your inner life is the culture. So it doesn't matter what you speak, what books you recommend they read. It's what you're living is what's going to become the culture of those around you. So that means, you know, spending time managing just external things like institutions and, you know, plans and strategies, that's easy. But leading Letting yourself be leading your inner life, that's dealing with monsters. That's mm-hmm. difficult. And but that is your real work. And and so I to my encouragement, I didn't get started until my late 30s, is you want to dedicate serious time and investment into your being and, and, and early. Because that is the most important, that's the most important gift you can give to your business, your church, your employees, your lead, everyone who's looking to you for leadership. It's your being, uh, and your gifts may go beyond your being, right? You're, you're re- you may have a platform because of your charisma way beyond your inner life's capacity to sustain it, but it will catch up with you. It, oh, yeah. It's an, it will. And Yeah, I know this is your life's work, and we explore it every time we get together, but just for those who are like, okay, I got to pay attention to my inner life, can you give us a couple of building blocks for that, Pete? Like. How do I, I've, I've had to figure it out the hard way like you do. I had to, you know, work on that day after day, year after year. What are some rhythms that if someone's like, I've never paid attention to the inside, where, where do they start? Wow. <clears throat> well, we're talking to a Christian audience here. Largely, yep. Largely. Um, but even if you weren't a Christian, I would mm-hmm. say to you, you need first silence and stillness in your life. Now that's frightening before the Lord um, uh, to be able to pay attention to your feelings, what's going on inside. Uh, 
your motives. Like, why am I anxious? Why am I impatient? Why am I so angry at that, you know, that person at the meeting who ignored what I said or disagreed with me? I mean, to even have space to be reflective uh, so God can come to you. Doing things like looking at your family of origin, how it's impacted who you are today. So we have many folks with PhDs um, who think they're stupid. And they get another PhD. They still feel like they're stupid. Why? Because they were told they were stupid when they were six years old. They never did the inner work to differentiate. They're still living their family of origin story. And yeah, they got two PhDs now, but they still feel like losers or stupid. Or folks who are highly accomplished lead multimillionaires who feel like losers. Mm. They live like they're poor, but they're actually worth hundreds of millions of dollars because it's inside the money. The money's not solving the inside problem, right? And so, you know, everyone's coming into your team, for example, of how they do conflict, how they do feelings, how they do empathy. I mean, you name it. How they do uh, success. Well, all that's coming from a, a family of origin. You can't help manage and lead that team if you're unaware of your own self. So it starts with you slowing down to pay attention. And you probably, you, you know, you probably need to find some kind of guides, you know, mentors, coaches. Now I'm not talking about just coaches who are going to help you manage moving faster and, and smarter. Okay. There are coaches that will help you do that. I'm talking about coaches, mentors, spiritual directors, therapists. They're going to help you get at the inner life out of what you lead in the outer life. So I think you, we, we're, we're, we're leading externally from the inside. That's the difference versus I'm just leading things from the on the outside here. And, and if there's problems, I'll pay attention to my inside because I have to, but I'm not, I don't have time really for that because I'm moving so fast. That's American leadership. Uh, and sadly, we brought that into the church, right? We pray before the meeting starts and then we plan, we got to reach the world for Christ. Well, you know, that's, I'm glad that the early church didn't do that. We wouldn't be here today. Let's pick apart. The Collapse of Leaders. It's a good interview. I haven't touched a single question I sent you. So this is good, Pete. This is good. Let's talk about the moral collapse of leaders. And let's not pick on anyone in particular, no names. Unfortunately, there's enough examples now that we probably all have someone else in mind. You know, but men and women, mostly men in business, men in ministry, um, mess things up. I mean, they end up taking money, making stupid decisions, sleeping with people they're not married to. Um, betraying the trust of people and abusing people. Like, you know, the collapse of, of, of leadership happens so often. Do you want to talk about what you see in that? Like, what are some of the driving factors that cause leaders to fail? Well, there's many complex reasons. Many folks go do, like you say, why would they do such a stupid thing? Like, they even actually have a pretty good marriage and they go have an affair, and you're like, why? Or, or they embezzle money, but they don't even really need it that badly. And you're saying, why would they do that? Why That's would a great you? question. Yeah. Well, I mean, part of it is they're, they're looking to get out. The pace of their lives is unsustainable. They're angry at something, maybe at themselves, a situation. They don't, they don't have any idea how to redo their lives. So they do something stupid so they'll get kicked out. You'll kick me out, so that'll get me out. Now, is I'll that intentional? Are they like, no, I'm it's get totally fired? no, it's all subconscious, right? Yeah, yeah, they have no idea why. But, and they're running on such fumes or so exhausted. So I just, you know, it's like, I, you know, because they don't know how to self-soothe, again, low differentiation is a word we often use. 
So I come home, I'm exhausted. I'm, you know, and what do I do? I go watch porn to kind of medicate and feel better with myself. I mean, you know, it's like versus letting yourself feel the feelings. I'm exhausted. Pivot. I need to make some shifts here. I mean, you talked about you're making some shifts in 2022 about how you're structuring your schedule, which I'm sure you'll talk about in the podcast, which I thought was fascinating, but you're pivoting, knowing that Mm -hmm. this is probably not the pace I want to go for 2022. Right. We're going to shift. And it's hard because no one's telling you to shift. No one's, the the momentum is- Everyone's telling me to do the opposite. Everyone's saying, we want you, we need you. And I'm like, no, I'm not making any decisions on 2022 until Q3 2021. My calendar is blank. That's amazing. And I'm in the same situation. I've got the momentum pushing me forward from publishers to people who work for me or around me. You know, people's livelihoods are wrapped up in this thing and Hmm. it's exciting and there's there's adrenaline on it. And it's- Oh, yeah. Yeah. Look, somebody wants me. Wow, this this is big. You know, it's like that poster, Uncle Sam. I got a, I got a post this on social media. It's such a, it's, it's a, you know, a poster, Uncle Sam wants you, that oh, old yeah. army poster. And how many young kids, because you want to be wanted so bad. And so you say, I'll, I'll sign up. Oh, want to brilliant be psychology. I never thought about that. And so they sign up and they're in boot camp or they're in the middle of a, a, a firefight. And they, why did I ever say yes? Because no one ever wanted me. And the army said, I, we want you. And I realized it's the uh, same. It's a whole new spin. It's the same with pastors and leaders. Why did I say yes to the speaking engagement? I didn't want to go, but they want me. Well, I don't know, get on the plane. I'll fly four hours, but they wanted me. At least I'm on a plane. I don't want to be on this plane. I want to be home. But I got seduced by, we want you. And so I didn't, again, it's, it takes, it's work to have the self-discipline to be able to know what to say no to. You ever heard the expression, since the Middle Ages, one of the sins, the seven deadly sins was sloth. Mm-hmm. And the sloth was uh, the lack of discipline to set priorities. The lack of discipline to have a life of recollection, they used to call it, a life of silence and solitude to That's be That's a centered. very different understanding than we think of as sloth. Yes. And so to be only slothful people are busy. Mm. And so what I'm, I have my own, I have my kind of my things I watch in myself, especially in my body, when I am out of whack, when my, I'm doing far more than my inner life can sustain, when I've been seduced by that Uncle Sam wants you, <laughs> Pete, and I've said, yes, I don't want to do this. And I, so I, I pay very close attention to my body because the body knows before often my mind and our minds. So you're thinking, if I'm tying this in right, is it possible that these leaders who end up in the headlines have had all the symptoms that you would feel? They just didn't realize it was going on. You said they wanted out, uh, that kind of thing. Can you talk about some of the symptoms that you look for to see if you're getting out of sorts? Because I realized when I burned out, I never understood affairs, never understood that. And that's that's nothing that's been part of my story uh, by the grace of God. But like when I was really burned out, I'm like, oh, this is how it happens. I had one guy tell me once, all I wanted to do was feel something because I yeah. couldn't feel anything anymore. Exactly. So let's keep talking about that. What, yeah, what are the yeah. signs that you might be heading for a fall? Well, I'm, 
or getting out of whack. It's not even essential. Again, what's what's a fall? There's the there's the big falls where I blow up my life or my marriage and my kids by doing something really stupid. Um, again, not understanding the, even the power. I'm, I I I get afraid. I afraid. I in a healthy fear of sadness when I see young gifted people wielding power whether it's in a church context a large church or plat they're building their platforms on social media you know really big or traveling and, get, and I'm like oh lord because I know in certain cases they do not have the inner life to sustain this and this is not good this is not good and uh so but they don't realize it's not good and they actually are saying all the right things they're actually preaching the right things and they don't even get it that they're not living it. It's so seductive. You hmm. can even write about it and not actually live it. And it's not going to come out for five, 10, 15, 20 years. And what I understand is like the platform is, 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 is a smoke. It's a cloud. It's going to come and go. It's just, we're here, Carrie, we're gone. I mean, Pete who? Carrie who? I mean, you know. A oh, few. you're right. So I look for on the, on the small things, what, what, for myself, because I, I could, hey, I could fall like anybody tomorrow. I mean, if anyone thinks he stands, let him take heed lest he fall. I mean, First Corinthians thirteen. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, verse no, chapter thirty. Yeah, I think chapter uh, no, chapter ten, verse 13, 11, 12, 13, About if you think you're standing, you don't. You don't. You're in big trouble. Like you're. We're all dependent. So I watch myself on a daily basis. One, am I? Is there anxiety in my body? Is there tenseness? My stomach. My, you know, like I had. I had a really. I. I had a. Um. Um. Very difficult conversation yesterday. Um. And had to. They made this long story during COVID. A video. Uh, a DVD video of me for a. Um, one of our curriculums, a redoing of the mm. curriculum. And they did it during COVID. So they kind of did some things on, not to cheat, but had to do compromise some things. Anyway, I got the final cuts and, and you know, I was supposed to like approve it and then we're good to go. And I thought it was terrible. Mm. And they probably put 20, 30 plus thousand dollars into it. A bunch of people's a couple few days work. I put a couple of days work in. And I said, I'm, I'm not going to, I, you can't release this. This, this is poor. This is, this quality is not reflective of the kind of quality we want at Emotionally Healthy Discipleship. What makes us who we are is the quality we produce. And I said, this is a backward step. And I said, I, I this has to be redone. Hmm. And so, but I, I was up half the night and the anxiety of like, this is going to be a battle with a major publisher. There's a lot of th tens of thousands of dollars involved. There's a lot of people's lives. Someone could lose their job. <laughs> I mean, I'm like, I'm thinking of all them. I'm thinking of my own integrity. Anybody can long start short, but just that was a lot in my body. And so when I I had that conversation and I was able to be calm in it and it went went really well and they agreed to do it, which was wonderful. But I had to compensate for that. Like my body yesterday, like it was a 10, 10, 10 30 meeting. I just had to like slow the rest of the day. Like I just, this morning- You kind of planned for it. You're like, I need to decelerate out of this lane after? I knew, I, oh, I knew, I knew. So my, yeah. I could feel it in my body. Um, and throughout the day, I, I took some time off and I took some this morning off just to kind of, you know, I feel great now. And it was, a, but I, it took a lot out of me. I was aware of what that one half hour meeting there's energy that goes out. Even Carrie, everything we do, energy is going out of us. And it, it's monitoring, is enough energy, is enough coming into me? 
Okay. So I've got to be receiving in on a daily basis what's to correspond to what's going out. So you're tapping into something I haven't written about. I've just been, it's been in my brain. It's like mutual brainwaves for about the last two months. There's that one verse in the gospels when the woman comes up, touches the hem of Jesus garment. And there's the idea that the power goes out of him. So of course I've read that my whole life as, okay, so there's some kind of holy power, miraculous power, whatever. And then I've been thinking about that as a filter for my life. Like everything I decide to do, from answering an email to solving a Wi-Fi problem, there is power that goes out of me. Not in the same way that heals a woman who's been sick, but like there, you you have like diminishing reserves over the course of a day. Would you agree, disagree? Absolutely. Any thoughts on that? Again, we're back to, we're humans. Being yeah. with limits. With limits. That, and yeah. so every interaction, everything we do, power or life is going out from us. So if we're speaking to a crowd of 10, 20, 50, 1,000, life is going out of us. And so therefore, there has to be a replenishment this direction. That's why, for me, setting rhythms, what are the rhythms like in your days and your weeks, your months, uh, your years? How, how do you structure that? Uh, I think sabbaticals are very important. I think I know business people that take sabbatical. I think Sabbaths are important. Um, uh, for me, my morning time, like I had a midday I call it office uh, earlier. It was so good for me, you know, for like 15, 20 minutes. I just was, I pretty much was silent most of the time and just still and just being, you know, resting in God, resting in myself, just being present of his reality. I read actually around a story of a desert father, the desert father book there. And I, Arsenius, you know, flee, uh, pray always, you know, and you'll be saved. I thought, you know, flee from men is what the text actually said. He was a senator during Emperor's time. He was tutor to the senators, the Emperor's sons. And he fled him to the desert to get to God. It was a tremendous text. And I thought, you know, and, and he would refuse to, to, you know, let himself be famous. He just stayed in the desert. Uh, so his will would be one will with God's will. And obviously, I'm not living in the desert. I'm living in New York. But it was just such a like, yeah, Lord. Um, and, and to me, it was just uh, hiddenness is a good place. Uh, not being busy is a really good place. Uh, being prayerful and present to God is a good place. It's a whole different reality, right, that I'm surrounded by as I open the newspaper, right, and, and read it that way. You know, and, and around other leadership adrenaline junkies, you know, trying to monitor that, not get caught up in what I like to call Americanized Christianity. I'll say, no, I'm not, I'm not doing that. Before we move on, what are some other signs? You look for anxiety. What else do you look for? Well, I, if you're married, I just, another thing is you, all you do is ask your spouse, how are you? That's, that's a good sign. That tells you a lot. Uh, Because you're one flush with this person if you're married. And, uh, even though you may be in different professions and all that, you different, yeah, you, know, you have different interests and all that, but you're one flesh, and therefore the nurturing and overflow of that relationship is very key. So you're to, asking your spouse, "How do you think I am?" No, 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 no. I just oh. ask, "How are you?" How are you? Because so really, genuine interest in her. Yeah. Well, if they're lousy, no, they're lousy. That says something about you, right? Ah. Oh. <laughs> That says something about you that you're just going on and your spouse is is not is not well or whatever is feeling, you know, 
you're out there doing your build. You're building something, all right. And I'm over here doing my thing, but we're really not connecting. Got it. Um, my, my my wife's big thing about the church. She can analyze a church pretty quickly. She'll ask the pastor spouse, "How are you?" Mm-hmm. And that says a lot about the whole condition of the church for her because that spouse isn't flourishing. Church is probably not flourishing either. Not really underneath, uh, because that's your first neighbor. So you check anxiety, check your spouse. What else? What else? Um, do you pay attention again. You're checking. You're checking. You're, you're, you're very. You're very aware of your body. Very, very aware of what's going on inside your body. Um, again, tenseness um, when you're rushing. Very big signpost uh, that you're bypassing something. Rushing is to me a big yellow light going off in the car. Uh, that something is wrong. When you're making decisions quickly, when you're not listening, you're talking more than you're listening. Another big, you know, big signpost. Um, when you've got this feeling of like, I just, I just need time alone. I need time alone. Like I need, I need to, what's, yeah. Uh, and I, I don't get the time I need. I've got so much to do. Boom. That's a, that's a, that's a gigantic, but that's God. I, you know, I'm not living a life I really want to live. That's the Holy Spirit speaking to you. So I, I see all these things that are Holy Spirit coming to us. Um, and so you're paying attention to where God is giving you, where there's life. You're able to, you have time to actually savor it. As I mentioned to you about this case study thing, like, I just know, like, God was, I fell into something by responding to all these case studies. Stuff was coming out of me. Stuff was coming out of people. But I said, I don't know what this is, but I know God's in this somewhere. Hmm. Does that make any sense? Yeah, and and I'm glad you looped back to the master class. We got off on on some other subjects, but that was what one of the points I wanted you to bring across to leaders. You learned something because we have a lot of content creators here. So shifting gears, we have a lot of content creators, and often we're broadcasting. Posted a video to YouTube. I preached a sermon. I you know shot a vision message or whatever whatever you're doing in the moment, but you're not really testing that material live in a case format with feedback, and you loved it. And it made me think, I've done a lot of Q&As over the last year, year and a half since I haven't been traveling, a lot of interaction with podcast listeners and with leaders in my courses, in the leader circle, and really in the position of student, listening to people's cases. What was the benefit of that for you? When you write a book or give a sermon or teaching, it's it's general. It has to be by the very nature of content. But discipleship or leadership development is specific. It, it has to be like, again, if you Jesus in the 12, it's along the way in context. That's where the power is. And so a case study enables you to get into that a person's particular context in a way that you just could never in a chapter of a book. So I wrote this book, it's for, it's for leaders, and it's got some tremendous, pre- I, you know, I got some whole philosophy about creating content too, which we should touch on at some point later. Okay. Uh, because I, 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 I have a, a people who write books and they, they, they release content, but it's not been gestated properly. Mm. And it just becomes just, you know, anyway, it's, it's not been birthed. It's a, pre- it's a premature birth. And I read so much, so many premature birth books, and I just feel like, why? Why'd you have to rush it? Why'd you listen to the publisher? 
why'd you let that deadline get to you? This wasn't ready. Mm-hmm. And it's bummer to me because now the you message You can tell when it comes from a deep place. You can tell, yes. You can tell. And when it's had time, when the last page is as good as the first page, mm-hmm. when, you know, it's not like, oh, here's, I had two great chapters and the rest of it's kind of like, you know, there really wasn't the kind of thought. And my word count, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I'm sorry. The first question was about, okay, so I tried. No, was, but the master class. And then I oh, do yeah. want to get into content creation. Yeah. So, so, and when case study, I mean, you actually encourage people to write down the exact situation they were facing. Yeah. And, and, and be specific, you know, um, what's the problem and what have you done to solve the problem? And then what questions you're holding, force them to do work. So you don't do all the work for them. I want, I want, I, I'm, I'm in a place that I want people to, you know, read some content do this, and then you do a case study and try me everything you've done. Now, actually, you know, I got the idea was I think it was from originally from Peter Drucker. Oh, okay. Peter Drucker would not meet with anybody who didn't first send them a, a, a sheet about what were your cha- what challenges are you facing. Hmm. And I guess where I got the original idea from. So I get asked all the time. People want to meet with me, and I'm like, well, put in writing. What is it you're wrestling with? What have you done so far to resolve it? And what questions you're holding? In other words, you do some work to really define. Why do you want to talk to me? What, what's really the question you're holding? Now, sometimes the question they're holding isn't even the right question, but at least they've done work to go as far as they can. Yeah. And I appreciate that. Versus I'm doing all the work trying to pull out of them. I'm spending, you know, an hour pulling out what's going on here. What's your context and all that. I can get it in five, 10 minutes, just reading a one or two page thoughtful case study. But you found yourself responding to these case studies and teaching extemporaneously discovering all these thoughts that were new to you too, right? Well, to be honest, I wasn't necessarily even, I wasn't, I wasn't extemporaneous. I actually, what I would do is I, what I do is I I liked having them and I kind of, they kind of grouped in different groupings. Like one was global. Uh, One was people leading high powered movements. Others were young leaders, you know, struggling with a lot of young issues in your thirties, kind of issues, twenties and thirties. And, uh, with dark nights and frustrations of speed. Speed is a big issue. People's mm. frustration with speed takes so long. You know, team building. They want to build culture. Like, what's the program that builds culture? Give me the and and so really helpful. Really, really helpful. So I'm actually gonna do a I'm gonna try to do a monthly pot part of uh, each month, do case studies with a theme mm. and see if it works. I, there's something about the case study. I'm gonna experiment that even on a podcast format. Um, and see, see words. I just, I just love it. I, I, I just loved it. So, um, for example, a number of folks leading large movements were concerned about building culture. They want to make disciples. You know, we have, a, we have a course that we've developed that a lot of churches do the course, uh, which is important as a, as one building block to change a culture. It's called the emotionally other discipleship course. And this, and, but it's not about having this course kind of like an alpha in your church every year. That's not the issue. Mm. The issue is the leadership being the culture with this material is in your bones and you're actually living it and reinforcing it with your leadership and your teams. If you're, if you're not living it and your teams aren't living it, it doesn't matter what courses you run. It doesn't matter what you preach. It doesn't matter how big your church is. It's shallow. You're just doing world culture with a Christian veneer in it. But if you're going to be serious about discipleship, you're going to go the same way as Jesus. It's going to be sloppy, difficult, messy, small, and slow. That's it. You're going to have to figure out how am I going to disciple a few? You know, Jerry and I, we used to choose 15, 17 people, 
and we would do like a, a year in our basement year every year, you know, and even now we're, we're, we're doing it for leaders in kind of a cohort, take, you know, picking some people that we're working with and investing ourselves in a few. Now it doesn't seem to produce much initially. It's like, this is like, you know, what am I doing here? I, and I used to have friends who were in these big churches and doing strategic planning all the time. I was like, I'm in my basement. I'm with these 15 people and half aren't even going to work out. Okay. Half don't even want to hear what I'm saying. And that was really about our average, about half would be like, you know, whatever, you know I mean? It didn't really respond that well. And even, even to carefully choosing them. And uh, I relate to Jesus and Judas, imagine. I mean, goodness. Yeah, it's like, Jesus. well, didn't get them all right. Yeah. Discipleship is just, you build a culture just takes years. It's really slow, thoughtful. But every time something comes up with a team member or a person in your church, I say someone, um, uh, uh, I, 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 I was telling this pastor, someone, someone says, you should be meeting with everybody in our church every month. You should be one-on-one, you should be calling them. It was a church plan or every two weeks they told them. And I said, that's a discipleship moment. I said, do you understand? That's a culture moment, how you respond, how you meet with that person and say, let's, let's talk about how do we clarify, what's a, what's a valid expectation? And there's a, we have a certain skill on that. You know, it's got to be conscious, spoken, uh, realistic, and agreed upon. I said, do you ever agree that you'd meet with these people? He goes, no, I never agree to that. It's I, I would never be home. Mm-hmm. And I said, but you understand, to just let that slide is a culture moment. You've got to meet with that person one-on-one. But you've got to have in your own, how do you deal with people when they do that? What's it touching? What's it triggering in you? So there's a lot of work to be done in your, you to go talk to that person. And that means you've mastered this skill of stop mind reading, clarifying expectations so that you can walk in there train them differently because that's how their family of origin did it. Probably their parents, their grandparents, their great-grandparents. It's in their bones Mm. to make those kinds of ridiculous statements. And now they're bringing that all into your culture that you're building. And you're just going to let it slide because you don't know what to do except be upset at night that they're probably going to leave the church. (laughs) And so, again, what's building culture? It's hard work. But, But if you'll do that hard work with the, you know, over and over again with the one, like Jesus with the 12, you know, who's the greatest? They kept going, who's the greatest? Can I sit at your right and left? Same kind of issues coming up at different angles, but they finally got it. But you gotta be willing to like do those little conversations and it just takes time. And there is just, there's no pill. I was like, you want, you want a pill? There, there's no pill here. It's, it's just Jesus with the three and the 12 and the 70 and to mustard seed, it doesn't look like it's working, but it is. It really is long-term. In the masterclass, you were telling the story, and if I'm telling uh, tales out of school, we can cut this out. But you're telling the story of one leader, not a unique story, who was really struggling. Things weren't growing, not feeling good, good about, I think it was a he, he himself. Um, can you flesh out that story and tell us yeah, so he, your he, advice? This fellow is a very gifted young leader in her early 30s, uh, church plant growing uh, and blossoming, but then COVID hits. And all of a sudden, New York is not the place to be, <laughs> okay? <laughs> People are leaving New York, half the church left. Um, and he's working with lots of folks in their 20s and early 30s who are, uh, and he was frustrated because they were consumers. They weren't, they weren't be willing to take leadership and get equipped and help build the church. And he was frustrated with their slowness and their indecisiveness all their problems. And then you got the COVID thing. And, 
and basically how hard it was and how slow and discouraged. And, and, uh, and I knew a little bit about him and his history. And uh, he's always the golden boy. Everything he touched turned to gold. Super gifted young man. And, and I know if they haven't come to him yet, they're going to come to him with invitations from other churches because he's a really good communicator publicly. And the temptation for him to leave this difficult environment in the next couple of years is going to be very, very high, very strong. More money, more people, more platform. And I said to him, hey, uh, I just want to give you something to think about. I'm not the Holy Spirit, but I want to give you something to think about, that this might be God's gift to you, that this dark night that you're in of difficulty, that rather than kick against, you know, like kick against the goads as Paul did, uh, rather than strike your again, strike your staff against a rock because you're so angry at God moving so slowly, that maybe God's in breaking you, that everything you touch doesn't turn to gold, that sometimes everything you touch turns to dust, and it's God who turns things to gold. Or maybe it's God's will that you actually persevere joyfully in this difficult place, and that you stay, and you look like you're failing, but you're actually succeeding. By failing. Because you can be, quote, succeeding and failing, but you can be failing and succeeding. I said, the question is just, what's God's invitation to you right now? And I would just suggest to you that you're 31 years old, 32 years old. You've got 40 to 50 years ahead of you. It's really serious, active service for Jesus. This is a blip in the screen these next three, five years, 10 years. And I just would encourage you to relax and love your people and be patient. And Invest in them, invest in yourself, let God change you. But that idea of being the golden, gifted, anointed young man who the evangelical empire will make you a superstar is the worst thing that could ever happen to you. So this is God's protection and love for you. You know, you came to New York. Yeah. Advice was received. Good. I actually called him to follow up because I was concerned I wrecked him. Uh, I was concerned. uh, no, he he's and I, I recommended a book to him as well, uh, the making of a leader by Robert Clinton. He used to teach at Fuller, and Clinton's work at Fuller was to trace how God makes leaders. And his basic point was that all great leaders who make it long term, they didn't really start bearing fruit until they were fifteen to twenty years into their ministries. That it was mostly yeah. God inside of them the first fifteen twenty years, and that the real fruit came later. And I said, this guy said, you think you're bearing fruit? It's really nothing to what it's going to be later, if you're faithful to Jesus in these years. And, and I said, I recommend a book to him. So he actually had picked it up. He had read it. He just said, it's a really hard, it's hard to bear. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what you're saying is very hard to bear. Because intellectually, I know it's true, but I don't want it. I don't like it. it it's hard. I said, okay, that's good. That's good. And, he, and so he's letting himself be angry, which is good and be sad, which for him was gigantic. He didn't do anger or sadness. So he's on a really good journey, a really good journey. Um, I hope he stays on making some good decisions. Sounds like he's going to, which was great. But I did follow him up because I was a bit concerned. You know, there's 40 people listening in, so there wasn't a lot of like time for him to talk. So he talked like for an hour straight with me when I asked him how he was. <laughs> he had a lot to share. I'll bet and he it did. Was it, it was good. Yeah, I'm putting myself back in, you know, 31, 32, and that would be a really tough message to hear. It is. 
I'm not sure I would have listened. You know, in my case, my body stopped. Just like, all right, we're on strike. You're burning out. And so that's where, you know, that happened in my early 40s, around 41. But it's a tough message. So Pete, we're, man, time's flying. We have thousands of young leaders listening right now. Tens of thousands of leaders listening. Everyone's been under pressure cooker stress, like historic levels of stress for a couple of years now. Um, Speak to leaders. Like, how do you care for your soul when none of this shows any sign of predictability, normalcy, or easiness in the future? Yeah, I, I would see that the unprecedented crises that we're experiencing as invitations from God to pivot. Now, not simply pivot strategically, which is when we first go in our thinking, you know, and, and there's no doubt we are all pivoting, you know, externally in our, in our ministries and business or leadership responsibilities. I'm talking about pivoting in the way that you're leading. Yeah. That's to me is the invitation. And it's an invitation to pivot from and lead from the inside out so that regardless of what's happening externally, you're okay. So if a war breaks out, a civil war breaks out in the country and you're, you know, I think of, I I often think of the Syrian Christians who were caught in the, when ISIS was marching down from the north towards Damascus. I had a friend who had done a lot of PhD work with the Syrian monasteries there in uh, uh, northern and central Syria that were going to, that as the, as the ISIS was approaching, uh, and a lot of them got killed, uh, and the monasteries got raised to the ground. And I thought, you know, the point is you can be in a place that regardless of what's happening historically, externally around you, you're okay. And you're going to be faithful to Jesus because you're not getting your validation from outside any longer. You've actually got it from the inside. That's, that's a, so you say, well, how do you get there? I said, well, that's, yeah, that's yeah, the, that was my next question. The journey. That's the journey. And I, and I would invite you to get on the journey. I, I, I think the journey is, this is, a, this is a God moment for you. You're feeling that. And that's God's in that feeling of I'm overwhelmed. Like this is, this is crushing. This is yes. So that means the resources are not there internally for you right now. All right. Now, what might it look like to bring a greater balance into my my leadership now. In other words, it's been so externally focused by external metrics up to this point. What might I look like to pivot so I've got some internal ones as well? What might they be? How do I learn about this? So I think that's where uh, emotionally healthy discipleship will help you. <laughs> that's a, mm-hmm. that's our piece to help you get started. There's so many resources out there, but it's not what we're used to in the leadership space to be talking about. Yeah. Now, I know in your story and my story, Pete, um, pain was a motivator. Things were not going well with you and Jerry. Things were not going well with my wife, Tony, and I. Things were going great at the church, but then I burned out, everything like that. What about somebody who would say, well, I'm not really at that point. Like things are okay at home. Things are okay. I'm stressed, but I'm not burning out. I'm not like, does pain have to be the teacher or how would you, how would you begin to shape it? Even if you're not hitting a wall right now? 
Yeah, I, I, yeah. By no means do you have to be in pain to get this. I mean, because you will be in pain. Everybody will be in pain. Everyone's going to hit walls. That's just part of living life. So, I, I can think of one friend of mine who, um, you know, he was in. He learned all about grief and loss, and you know, he's been in someone that was in our church. Eventually, was on our staff and did well. Anyway, he had a son killed in a car accident, and he wrote me. And said, I mean, he was crushed, of course. And he said, I just, I know we met a couple of times after that. And he said, I just can't even imagine being in this place and not having been equipped Mm. to understand walls, understand uh, God's pathway for dealing with grief and loss, uh, God's pathway of dealing with walls, learning to feel. He had not done feelings before. I had to integrate my feelings into my spirituality and my leadership. At that point, he was a pastor as well in another church. And he goes, I just can't imagine not having had all that equipping before this event happened in my life. Um, Now, of course, you could have learned it afterwards, but oh my gosh, you know? Uh, I mean, how many people say cancer was the best thing that ever happened to me because they finally had to deal with some stuff? That is not the way it has to happen. It happened to my way with me because I wasn't listening and there weren't, Folks around, yeah, was I. I wasn't listening, and there weren't people actually really talking about it very much. I had a publisher tell me recently most of the book submissions he's getting are about emotional health. I mean, the culture kind of came around. The young leaders are like emotionally fragmented and are like aware. They're much they're much less reluctant to talk about these issues, um, and they're actually very open, super open to things that my generation was like. What's wrong with you? What's your, you know, pray it, pray it through, buddy. Pray it through. Uh, so I think the culture's changed. Yeah. So there's the a lot of Absolutely. So I, I think the church, the Western church is at a real key place. If the church doesn't pivot, in my opinion, um, from a, uh, I'll call it more of a Western cultural Christianity to one that is more anchored biblically into the radical demands of Jesus to come follow him. I do think that we will just become a, uh, you know, kind of like the European church has become, you know, just kind of weak. And, but the leadership, God, the leadership's coming from Africa, Latin America, Asia. The church is booming in these places. And, uh, you know, the Western church is in big trouble. I, I think the political polarization has been another symptom of our weakness. Uh, to be that politically polarized in the church mm. is an embarrassment. I mean, every time that's happened in history, it has always led to catastrophe. I have a friend who's a missiologist, PhD, 40 years, and, he, and we went through all this, all the historical moments of where the church has gotten politically aligned with one political party or another. It's always led to a disaster every single time. And it's like we're in no, and it's always been a sign of weakness uh, of our discipleship and formation in the church, that we could be seduced that easily. I know we're pushing an hour in this conversation, but do you want to talk a little bit about the Americanized Jesus? We uh, That is such a helpful thing to see, right? Because I think historians will see it clearly. We look at it and go, no, that's just the way it is for a lot of people. Yeah, you know what's interesting? So, so I, 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 one of the chapters is called Follow the Crucified, Not the Americanized Jesus. And so it's interesting because it, 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 it's come out of, years of thought, but in particular, I spent a, I spent a few years on the gospel of Matthew. If you know, a few years, just like verse by verse, 
meditating, studying. And then I went to John and I was studying how Jesus discipled the twelve. That was my, I was like, how did he do it? How did he mold these people? What were the issues he was getting at? And so what I call the Americanized Jesus is actually, it's this, the same issues that Jesus was trying to drive out of the disciples are actually the same issues in every culture in the world. It just looked different. But the American culture in particular personifies them today, at least today in the 21st century. It's like the Hollywood. <laughs> and so the Americanized Jesus is like, you know, be popular. And Jesus was like, you know, reject popularity, just reject it categorically, live for me alone. You know, the world's discipleship is be great. Disciples wanted to be great. They wanted to be popular and they wanted to be great. Jesus says, just reject greatnessism. Just forget it. Be with the little, be with the small, be with the mustard seed. Then be successful, again, by the world standards, up and to the right, numbers and all. And Peter was like, never, Lord, are we going to be crucified and be rejected. And just like, no, reject successism. Just this whole worldly definition of success, get it, drive it out of you. And then embrace, you know, avoid suffering and pain is the world's discipleship. But, you know, don't suffer, don't have pain and failure. And Jesus, no, embrace failure and suffering as the way to, to glory. So, but these are, it's so deep in the gospels. And if you look at the Pharisees and religious leaders of Jesus' day, they were about the worldly discipleship model. Hmm. And so with the 12 disciples, they'd been shaped in it. So we've all been formed in this worldly discipleship model that really comes from the culture. And it's in the church. It's so deep in the church. So my invitation, my call to every young leader and the old leader as well, like our age, us as well, is like, uh, uh, no, you, you got to reject popularity. Just kind of, you, you care about one thing. Jesus has, well, he's the one I want to be. Well done, Pete. You know, that that's what I'm looking for. Him, you know, reject being great. So you want to be great, Carrie? I, I want you to be great. Like, I'm not like, like just this whole idea of being great or status. There was nothing about Jesus that was great by the world standards. In fact, he purposely kept telling people, don't say anything about me. Don't tell anyone. He'd heal you outside the village because he knew they were going to make him great for all the wrong reasons. And then, you know, be successful. He just, he didn't, he let thousands walk away from him. He was crucified alone. I mean, it just, he looked like a failure his whole life. I mean, that, that, and God does that to us. I mean, because, but he did the father's will and, and he didn't exercise his power in an, in a way that the father didn't work. When you have power, you can exercise it real easy for yourself. And that's the great test, isn't it? And uh, when you have platform, you have money, you have a, things grow, that's when things get dangerous. Because the more power you have to make these things happen, if you don't have the character to go with it, you're going to start wielding it in ways that are just worldly, and it just leads to disaster. So yeah, the, I think following the... Rejecting the Americanized Jesus is actually rejecting worldly discipleship that's been here since the beginning. And it's really all there in the gospel. I didn't do a sociological study or anything. I didn't do any of that stuff. I just took it right from like Matthew and John's gospel and like it's all here. And I said, I relate to it all. It's all, I mean, I've lived it. Mm -hmm. Pete, it's so rich. Thanks for making us better. So tell us about what you're doing right now. You have a podcast, your latest book, where people can find you online. Give us the, uh, the yeah, summary. Yeah, emotionallyhealthy.org is our tag. Uh, yeah, I've got a podcast, The Emotionally Healthy Leader, much like yours. I think, you know, I, I, I love yours and I love your blog, Carrie, and read it. I learn a lot from you. Um, 
you know, I think I'm coming from a specific angle of leadership. Yeah, yeah, you know, totally. Yeah, definitely not the whole, you know, it's the integration of that inner life out of which we lead. I want people with vision, but but I think my contribution is getting at what we call emotionally healthy discipleship or leadership. And so and so formative for me, Pete. Really has been. So I wrote emotionally discipleship to actually two leaders. Um, and it was my attempt to uh take the core theology of building a healthy culture especially specifically in a church or Christian-led parachurch ministry organization um, with like these seven marks that like, these are, these are cultural markers, like limits, grief, loss, make love the measure of loving well, brokenness and vulnerability, uh, you know, break the power of the past, follow the crucified Jesus, like these kind of, that you could build a healthy culture with. Um, and uh, so I'd recommend that it's a, it's, a, it's a great, it's meant to be a primer and get you like, I want this thing. Like I, mm -hmm. I, 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 and then it's going to, then it's going to launch you hopefully on a journey. It's got to be lived. No book's going to help you, you know, books are books, right? They're just ideas. Yeah. Um, to me, my, my passion is the next a generation of leaders that like we actually respond to these difficult times differently and we can lead the generation behind us. You ever that ancient Indian Native American proverbs, we, everything we do is for the seventh generation. Like we're no, always thinking of the generation behind us, you know, these generations. And I'm, I want us to be mentoring the next generations of pastors and leaders, nonprofits and people with vision. I meet so many wonderful young leaders. And I'm like, okay, let's get, help them get early on what we didn't get, which was some attention to their inner life. And I think if I can help on some of that piece, that'd be wonderful. Um, and they can then branch off and do great things for God. Hopefully, stand on our shoulders, carry, and but then that they can say no to opportunities just because a door opens doesn't mean they walk through it. And they have the wisdom and the courage and the grace to say, Not now for me. I'm not going to write that book. I'm not going to add that service. I'm not going to franchise our business. You know what I mean? Right now, I'm just going to stay right where we are and do a high quality job. And trust God with the, when it's time to expand. Such sage advice. We'll link to everything in the show notes. Pete, thank you so much for being with us again. It won't be the last time. Carrie, thank you. Well, you know, we're committed to you over the long haul and to finishing well, something I'm thinking about a lot lately. If you haven't checked out an episode, just scroll back with Steve Carter. We talked a lot about that, what crisis does to people, to victims, but also to the entire organization. How do you finish well? So if you want more of what Pete had to say, we've got all the links for you in the show notes. You can go to kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 438. I would love to hear your questions about productivity. I'm going to answer Gina's question. And if you haven't checked it out yet, head on over. I know it's a lot of work because you're listening and you're driving in the car. Just, you know, freeze this for a moment. Send yourself a text if you can safely. All right. And just say, ask Carrie about productivity Head on over to kerryneuhoff.com slash podcast. Scroll down a little bit. You'll see a microphone. Just follow the instructions and maybe I will coach you on your productivity question. Um, I'm doing this because I got a brand new book coming out called At Your Best that I would love for you to check out more about that in a moment. But first, I'm going to tell you what is up next. We've got Kendra Adachi. So she, maybe you're like, Carrie, all this productivity stuff makes me feel like just overwhelmed. Well, she wrote a book called The Lazy Genius, and she's an Enneagram One and a former perfectionist who eventually had to give up on the notion that she had to be a genius about everything. Uh, we go all kinds of places on productivity, and actually that's going to be a big theme over the next month. So here's an excerpt from the next episode. A lazy genius is someone who is a genius about the things that matter 
and lazy about the things that don't, but to Mm. them, like to the individual person. Like I said, like not everything can matter. And I think we know that intuitively or maybe intellectually, we know that, that not everything can matter to everyone, but we sure try (laughs) really hard to Mm. make everything matter. And I, I think too, you know, this is a leadership podcast. I think that people who are leaders who are in who are in ministry who are running companies you feel like you have to be really great at a lot of things that a lot of things matter and you know i know that i would often feel like i'm not doing a good job if i'm letting things go like aren't good leaders supposed to be like extra capable and hold all of these things and and i would say no cuz that's why people burn out cuz they're trying to do mm. too much That's next time on the podcast. If you subscribe, you'll get it automatically. If you're new to the podcast, welcome and please subscribe. We also have John Mark Comer, uh, David Allen, Aaron Meyer, who wrote a book on Netflix, Chris McChesney, for those of you who know the 4DX framework, Four Disciplines of Execution. So good. Just did my interview with Amy Porterfield. If you want to get a leg up in online marketing, that's coming your way. Mike Todd is coming back. We've also got Dave Hollis. And we've also got the guys from the Art of Charm podcast coming on this show. Very excited for all that. If you subscribe, of course, you're not going to miss an episode. I only listen to the podcasts I subscribe to. Well, now it's time for Ask Me Anything About Productivity. Thanks again to our partners who we carefully select. If you haven't yet rethought your employee health benefits, go to remodelhealth.com slash analysis today. Save money, get more. Use the code CARRY50 for 50% off. And right now you can get $200 off the regular Ministry Grid price by going to ministrygrid.com slash carry. Well, with my book release of At Your Best, we got a promotion on right now that is going to give you access to a number of bonuses that will go away when the book launches. So you got a couple of weeks to take care of it, but why not do it right now? Head on over to atyourbesttoday.com. And when you pre-order the book, audio, Kindle, I just read the audio book. That was a lot of fun and a lot of work. (laughs) Or the hardcover, of course. Uh, You will get access to a masterclass. We sunk so much into this masterclass. Don't think, oh, I shot it on my iPhone. No, 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 no. We rented this amazing studio, poured it in. It's yours for free if you pre-order the book. So head on over to atyourbesttoday.com. You got to have the today in there because if you go to atyourbest.com, you'll learn how to DIY a bunch of stuff, which is awesome. We, we, we love those guys, but that's not us, okay? It's atyourbesttoday.com. And go there before you go to Amazon or Barnes & Noble or your indie bookseller because that is where uh, you'll be able to see all the bonuses and you will be able to get the bonuses. If you just buy the book and forget about it, you don't get the bonuses, which, you know, we'd love for you to get the book. But anyway, the what is at your best about? It's about getting time, energy, and priorities working in your favor. And I'm coaching people around that right now for a season. So again, if you haven't yet given me your question, go to kerryneuhoff.com slash podcast, click on the button, start recording, leave me a voicemail. That's what Gina did. And here is her question. Thank you for taking my question. My question is, Does crisis or something like the pandemic change our ability um, to be productive? And are there practices we have to um, maintain in times of crisis versus times of um, more normal workflow? Thank you so much for your question, Gina. It is a good one. So yes, we have all been through an unprecedented 18 months. It's like, what? Like, are you kidding me? Nobody could have predicted this. But I want to I spin the question a little bit for you, Gina. 
Doesn't it feel sometimes like life is crisis? Like long before the pandemic, long before the global turbulence, we were all like little crises that happen. And sometimes they're personal. Sometimes they're beyond your control. It could be a health crisis. It could be emergencies in your company or in your church. It could be a staff member that's gone rogue or going through a real crisis. It could be your health or the health of a loved one, a child, a parent, a sibling, uh, a spouse. Um, and, you know, life is a series of emergencies. That's what it feels like. So I want you to expand the question because what I'm going to share with you, I think could be a strategy to deal with the crises that inevitably come up. Sure, we are going to get out of coronavirus. That is just going to become a, you know, subdued part of life and life will go on. But that, I mean, people have been <laughs> sent from their home because of fires and uh, people have been struggling with extreme heat and you know, you look at the world, it is not getting any simpler. And your world is probably not very simple either. So what do you do? First thing I would say is as a rule, and I learned this the hard way, all of my lessons and at your best, I learned the hard way. Uh, most people are overscheduled. So you look at your week, and this is what I encourage you to do, Gina, open up your calendar, look at the week ahead. You go, mm, it's not too bad, right? But the way I used to schedule my meetings, I would often say, well, you know, let's let's just schedule a whole day of meetings uh, Thursday and a whole day of meetings on Tuesday. And then I would get into it. And what I did was I didn't leave room for anything urgent that would come up. And every day something comes up, right? You think about your life and then at your best, a third of the book is devoted to priorities. It's about how to get time, energy, and priorities working in your favor. I thought that would be like, oh, by the way, here's a few priorities tips. No, that ended up being the biggest section of the book because I realized that's how everybody gets on track. So I'm going to give you a hack, okay? Don't overschedule your week. What I've done, and I talk about this in At Your Best, is I set a meeting cap and recommend you do the same thing. So I'm going to tell you what I do. Don't do what I do. Figure out your number. But I think you have a maximum number of meetings or obligations you can do a week. And beyond that, you start to flounder. You start to get overwhelmed, overworked, overcommitted. My number, and again, this is not so that you just write down this number and live that way, but you need to experiment with your own. My number is 15. If I have more than 15 meetings a week, I start to get stressed. And that doesn't sound like a lot because you look at a calendar in my life with 15 meetings in the week, it's like you got all Monday morning open, all Tuesday, you know, with nothing on. You've got Wednesdays kind of busy and Thursdays, full and Friday's got a couple of commitments in it. You're like, wow, you got all this time carry, but stuff comes up every week, global pandemics notwithstanding. And if I have 15, I know I'll be able to catch a lot of those curveballs when they get thrown at me. If I go lower than 12, I start to get bored. Now in coronavirus, right? That's a different thing when you're in a crisis. So I would look at the number of meetings you have and try to figure out what's your ideal number. Now, if you're, I'm a little bit introverted these days. If you're a real extrovert, you may want 20 meetings a week to really help you thrive. If you're super introverted, uh, maybe more than seven, you know, a meeting a day on average. Well, that would be more than a meeting a day in a five-day work week, but more than seven really drains your battery. You got to figure out what your number is. And an easy way to do that, you can monitor it going forward. But I want you to look back over the last month or two and try to remember what was a really good week. And then ask yourself, what was true during that week? And when you look back at it, Gina, you'll go, oh, you know, the third week of July was fantastic. I had seven meetings. I did this. I did that. And then look for the patterns because you're going to hit a number and mine is 15. 
where if I go beyond it, and I, I do that some weeks, you know, some weeks are just busy, okay? But listen, it is a busy season, but seasons have beginnings and they have ends. If your busy season doesn't have an ending, it's not a season, it's your life. So yeah, you can be in a busy season and jack that number to 17 or 18. I think that if I have 20, I, I kind of melt down at that point. And my team knows that. So we schedule to 15 a week. So look at your meeting cap. That's one thing. Second thing I would say, when you're truly in a crisis, and that could be a global crisis like we've been in, it could be an organizational crisis where sales are falling or um, you know, you're really in, in this downward spiral or it could be a staff member leaving or it could be a health consideration then you're really dealing with something a little more temporary. Like when coronavirus hit, uh, obviously we're 18 months into it now, but for about a month, a month and a half, it was what I call siege mode, siege mode. And what you have to think is what is essential and what is not. And those are anomalies. Those are things that you should not be managing by crisis all the time. And uh, when something big and global, and it could be in your case, a health scare or a diagnosis your spouse gets or something, what I would do is think, what do I need to be true to lead through this season well? So one of the things that happened to me was I lost all my speaking. Now, a couple of things happened with that. Uh, and that was a source of income for the company, for me, for my family. And I had all these people I had promised to serve. So I needed extra time in that season to renegotiate through my speaker's agency with a lot of those people and try to figure out what was going to be canceled and what was going to be flipped to digital. And almost everything flipped to digital. Once we got that solved, that was fine. I also realized, okay, now I have this time on my hands because I'm not on airplanes and in airports and different cities and time zones. And that gave me the opportunity to start something new. And so we forged a partnership with Glue and with Barna and started the Church Pulse Weekly podcast. That was a lot of meetings and, you know, Barna's West Coast. So I was up sometimes till 10 o'clock at night talking to David Kinneman, hammering that out with our friend Scott Beck over at Glue. And when we got that all figured out, we launched a podcast. Then it was record, record, record. But that was for a season. And within a couple of months, we had a real rhythm that worked between the Barna team and my team to produce the podcast. And then that became manageable. So what's the principle there? Crises should be short-lived. Uh, so even though we were in a global meltdown pandemic, that was two months of intense activity. Because if it had been six months of intense activity, I could have been a bug on a windshield. I could have been done. And so it was, you try to put a date on it. Now, if you're with chronic health concerns and they go beyond that two-month window, then you have to think, how am I going to recalibrate my life completely? And so this, this I hope, has given you some insight into that. Um, the At Your Best book will give you a framework, and it's a lot longer than I can do in a 10-minute answer, to completely recalibrate your life regardless of the circumstance you're in. So if you end up with a chronic health crisis near you, or perhaps it's yours, well, you can use the principles to radically recalibrate your life. If it's a season, you know how to adjust. And then, of course, if you're in more normal conditions, which I personally am right now, book launch notwithstanding, um, I know that my meeting cap's about 15 meetings a week for this season. And if I keep there and I keep my green zone, which we talk about in At Your Best, and I'm doing what I'm best at when I'm at my best, then I'm probably going to be okay most days. So Gina, I hope that helps. It's a great question. We're all there. We've all been there. And unfortunately, we will be there again. That is life. And uh, I hope this helps. I'd love to coach you. So leave your question at kerryneuhoff.com slash podcast. Click on the little button that says start recording. 
and leave me a voice message. I would love to coach you. And my newest book, At Your Best, gives you the strategies you need to win at work and win at home by living in a way today that will help you thrive tomorrow. It releases September 14th. There are special bonuses if you pre-order right now. You'll get free access to the At Your Best Masterclass. This thing, I can just say, is sizzling. This is not an afterthought. We poured a lot of time and energy into this masterclass. It will be available for purchase after, but right now it's free if you pre-order the book. And you also get early access to a burnout assessment and the Thrive Calendar that is the heart of the book. So you can pre-order at your best and claim your copy, and then you get the masterclass instantly. So you can go to atyourbesttoday.com. Don't forget the today, atyourbesttoday.com, and you can get all that right now. And I'll catch you next time on the podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope this has helped you thrive in life and leadership. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.